again everybody welcome to show to be with mike g the show of life the show of hands the show of bourbon the show of the 220k bump which is not an expensive cocaine habit today's guest is jessica sanders i've known jessica for a little bit now and i, I feel like drink wall especially has been something very influential to me personally helped me understand the business and the industry a little bit, but it's also introduced me to some wonderful friends, and we kind of talk about that a little bit. But the, the thing about this interview that I actually really found profound for me is it's it's great, yeah, to, to hear about Jessica's story and how she's rose to quote-unquote fame, if you will, as being one of the leading personalities in the industry, being the president of the USBG, for example. But she... She helped me understand communication a little bit better. She helped me understand the languages of love. And no, that's not a Neil Diamond album, although it, it could be someday. But it's a way, it's a way, it's a kind of a currency to help interact with people and help them understand you while you help them understand that you understand them. Okay, aka empathy. So let me shut up right about now and play you the wonderful interview with Jessica Sanders. Sometimes you need to talk to each other as though you're business partners and that yeah. has a certain tone. And sometimes you really need to talk to each other like lovers and friends. Right. And that has a certain tone. And transitioning back and forth is, is the biggest challenge, is really? understanding, okay, I need to snap out of business partner mode and right. approach this situation with some tenderness some softness, and some yeah, softness yeah. and some generosity and compassion. And it is strange, right? When you have yeah. like, there's task, 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 the schedule has to be filled. We have butts in the seats. We have to be open. But at the same time, I have to let you know that I love you and that we need time away. And to, exactly. Is it, has it been difficult to maintain that balance between the two for you? It's incredibly difficult. Yeah. I mean, the demands on your time uh, are really intense Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to take each other. And I'm particularly guilty of this, of, mm -hmm. of taking your partner for granted and thinking, oh, well, they'll just always be around right, whenever right. I make time for them. Yeah. And it can be a hard reminder when you're like, well, I'm really not doing a very good job of that. Yeah. You know, I shouldn't, it shouldn't be a situation where I'm trying to squeeze him in to yeah. the, the 15 minutes that I have available, that should be the priority of my day right. and everything else falls around it. And it's hard to sometimes um, have that be your priority when you're being pulled in so many different directions. I call it mission mode. Yeah, mission mode. And uh, I remember many times, Ladine and I are in the car and she's like, what's the matter with you? And I'm like, no, mission mode. We gotta get to the place on time. I'm sorry, I'm not taking criticism. I'm not having a conversation. This just has to get done. Yeah. And it's weird how you alienate your partner that way. Very much so. You know? Very much so. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, I think the other piece of it too is that when you have someone that does the same thing as you do, mm -hmm. 
it's great because you share in all the joys and you share in all the hard days. Oh yeah. But the problem is, is that you really develop an, an insensitivity and kind of a lack of sympathy for one another mm -hmm. because when the days are hard, guess what? They've had the same crappy day that you've had. Right, right. So they feel no sympathy. Yeah. You know, they're like, look, you just how do gotta... you? How are you empathetic? It's like, no, you you empathize with me. I've had a shitty day too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and the trick is you have to learn to fall into that together and mm -hmm. say, okay, we've both had the same shitty day. What are we going to do to get through it yeah. and get out of it together? To it better, right. And, you know, the thing about Michael and I is that we're very rarely in the same mood at the same time. Man. And I'm really grumpy in the morning uh -huh. and I, my day gradually gets better. So as you're a I, night person, you'd say? I'm a night person. Yeah. So I gradually wake up, I have my coffee and then my day just gets better after yeah. that. Oh yeah. If it starts with the shittiest part. That's great for you. It exactly. gets better, yeah. Michael wakes up with boisterous, tons of energy, oh, no. tons of joy. Yeah. And then the day kind of like wears on him as it goes. Oh, so probably around two o'clock in the afternoon, we're mm -hmm. about at the same place at the same that time. That is the perfect but place, right? we really do kind of cross. And then by the end of the day, he's kind of grumpy and mm -hmm. I'm in full creativity gangbusters yeah. get it done mode and so that's also hard because we're never like vibing oh, sometimes man, at the same time that's yeah. crazy yeah yeah it's it's a, that that is an interesting point i never even thought about this the sheer scale so if you were to plot your emotions over a day like you start off real low like let's say zero is not particularly happy and then you just increase exactly the whole time yeah and then you have an inverse if to, to use that an inverse correlation yeah. to michael but there is that point at least where you guys are totally vibing and it intersects well and i'm also a big believer in the five love languages what is the what are the okay so the five love languages is that's a, a lot of languages but it's a, it is a lot <laughs> and there's dialects too the five um, love dialects the five, there's five languages there's multiple dialects God so the it, five really? love languages is a book by gary chapman okay and he asserts that every single person speaks one of five love languages okay okay okay, okay. not all five not all five good okay right so the five love languages are uh words of affirmation so okay. you're the kind of person who needs to be told you're you're gorgeous you're smart sure okay. you're, I, I love you right you, you need look to great. hear the, you look great yeah. those kinds of words of encouragement okay physical touch which is pretty self-explanatory sure, sure. um acts of service what is that uh like doing things for me martyrdom you know? <laughs> <laughs> just doing kidding. things like you know uh, emptying the dishwasher oh, taking out okay. the trash selfless acts selfless acts yeah. right uh, gifts. Okay. Uh, and the last one is, I always forget the last one. Uh, words of encouragement, physical touch, uh, quality time. Quality time. Yes. Yeah, okay, so what you does just enjoy mean? spending time with that person, mm -hmm. doing activities together, just having dedicated one-on-one -on -one time right. without other people involved. Got it. So and you did I dedicated some time specifically for you and exactly. that's what resonates. And with we're going to go take a hike or something. And okay. that's our quality. Very time cool. Okay. So he asserts that every person speaks one of these five languages mm -hmm. and also is trained to receive love in a very specific way. I see. And okay. what, more often than not happens is you end up in a relationship with someone who may not directly speak your love language. Sure. They have to learn your language. Yeah. And, or, and there's also dialects. Like, so for example, say that your love language is physical touch, Okay. but your dialect is holding hands. And so that's, that's the way, your level. that's the way that your partner can most show that they love you is no by kidding. reaching out and holding your hand. Wow. Is there a table I can download online? That's just it's, like, yeah, it's, it's a real, it's a real short book, but it's yeah. excellent. And Michael and I speak very different love languages. Yeah. And over the years, we've really had to learn 
how to adapt to each other's language and understand, okay, why is he acting this way? Well, it's mm. because I haven't given him the words of affirmation that he needs uh, today. Okay. I need to turn on that language. Right. And nine times out of 10, it works. And his mood improves. My mood improves. What is your, what's, what's your... I'm an acts of service person. Acts of service. That's how okay. I show love. And that's also how I receive love. Gotcha. Michael is a words of affirmation person on he both ends. He needs to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, I would say my mom is a uh, active acts of service person. I think most women tend to be acts of service oriented. Yeah. She most gets of her my female friends that. are acts of service. Is that? I mean, you know, take a tangent for a moment. Is that kind of how your mom was, where she loved to do things for the family? And... Mm, my mom was really more. Um, she was probably more of a, a words of affirmation person. Okay. Interestingly, okay. Uh, I think also you crave the thing that you didn't get growing up oh, i think that there's also okay. some a little bit of truth to that yeah but yeah it'll be frustrating money's not on the list yeah <laughs> it's really frustrating because uh sometimes i feel like oh my god i'm doing so much mm -hmm. i just keep working keep producing 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 mm -hmm. and sometimes that isn't always in my mind appreciated but that's not how he receives language Got he you. Receives love, and it's right? like it makes sense to you like i'm i'm perfectly clear mike i'm but, doing but it all, don't you see all these things that i'm doing yeah and you know he's like yes but you haven't talked to me all day long oh man that is so crazy it's like <laughs> a shortcut to being able to have resonant conversations and emotional connections with your partner yep i'm learning a lot yes. right now because yeah. i'm trying to think which one i am you, you you say you're an acts of service person uh you know i would say that i'm probably the same yeah. i don't need much for me i just like doing for others yep you know and I'm, i mean i'm not serving do you think that kitchen, you but... receive and give in the same way that's a man that's a good question i i don't know i'd have to think about it i i think that i receive how do i receive love i just some intimacy, some physical intimacy now and again. For me, it's not something, it's not, it doesn't go as deep as penetration, to be right. perfectly honest. It's something as as uh, slight as a, a handhold. Yeah. Stuff like that. That's yep. that's what really resonates for me. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I think also people can have secondary languages. And I think sure. for the same way that I think a lot of women are acts of service, I do think a lot of men, whether it's their primary or their secondary, mm -hmm. physical intimacy is really important. Yeah. And it's not just about sex. Sometimes it's no, just, it's, it's, it's a cuddle, it's a hug, it's sure. a it's a something. You know? Right. So um, I think that across gender lines, you, you see some patterns. Yeah. It's sure. a really interesting thing. And I think that guys stereotypically, the let's say the media, society, whatever, they have firmly affixed themselves to the perception that men are just about sex. And that's really not true. Boys might be. Sure. But men are not. We, we're a bit oh, more complex well, than that. Very few men will cheat on their partner for the sex. It's yeah. A, it's for... An intimacy that they don't feel that they're getting. Right, exactly. There's and, some kind of... And it's of... usually, an emo this person actually listened to me, or yeah. this person thought I was funny, or respected what I had to say, yeah. or gave me 15 minutes, and, and that's so strange, really powerful. Right? That, that we think that it's it's all sex, right? Right. That, but it's not. It's sometimes, it's just, I just wanted to talk. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's insane. And you get these general platitudes and you start believing them. But then when you get down to just talking to people and understanding the dynamics of their relationships or marriages, it's far more real than that. It's far easier in a sense, right? It's oh, not sure. just all about money. It's not just all about sex. I mean, yeah, that's a brilliant thing. I have to check out. What's the book one more time? The five love languages, five long love languages. Huh? Interesting. Yeah. Does it work uh, with people that you just like? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I think it applies to everyone. I, I 
on a work level, I can mm-hmm. look at people and kind of understand, all right, what's going to motivate them? That's is it exactly me, is what it me telling yeah. them that they're doing a good job? Mm-hmm. Or is, you know, some people, they need the raise and that's yeah. the only thing that will show them that you care. Which, what is the raise considered then in the five languages? I guess it would be, I guess it depends on how it's oh, interpreted gift. by the a gift. It could yeah, be a gift, right? It, it could yeah. be a gift. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, some people, they want to feel like, they want to be heard, so they want that quality time with you right. to oh, offer feedback. Yeah. And they want to feel like you they have your undivided attention on whatever issue is right. stressing them that day. Um, so this is a good approach to management as well. I think so. Yeah, it's pretty I really good. Do. I mean, it's all about understanding how other people think and how to get them in a place where they're able to thrive, whatever mm-hmm. that means for them and for you and for your business. And it works for friendships. It works for parent, you know, child relationships. Yeah. Uh, my brother speaks a very different love language than I do. Does he? Yeah. What, so, what is he? What's he about? Uh, he is definitely a quality time person. Okay. So he really needs to have one-on-one attention. Yeah. My undivided ears. Right. Um, whenever, I mean, he lives in San Diego, so we mostly talk on the phone. But mm-hmm. if he senses that I'm doing other things while oh, he's on the no, phone with he's me. He's really offended. It, yeah, he's really offended. He's yeah. like, you know what, just call me back when you have actually have time oh, to talk and to it, me. That's the worst too, because I can just imagine the tone. Just call me back when you have time. Exactly. To talk. Yeah. Oh, the guilt is unrelenting. Oh my God. Yeah. So he he needs quality time. And when I go visit, he wants to go off just the two of us and have lunch yeah. or without other members of the family there. But that's a good that's good. It's a yeah. great thing to know. And to be perfectly honest, now that I'm kind of thinking about it, yes, the the small subtle touches of my hand or my hair or my shoulders that's definitely something that is part of my love language but i think that it's pretty apparent that i just like having conversations with people one-on-one <laughs> so maybe i just want that personal time so i don't know i'm kind of learning as we go on this is very therapeutic yes. jessica thank you so much well so you mentioned your brother you have any is he younger or older he's younger he's three years younger and how, how old are you you're we're about the same age i think well you don't I, have to tell me that's no no, no i i don't mind saying it. i'm 35 yeah. but it's funny because a, a couple of weeks ago someone asked me how old i was uh-huh. and 30 two just fell out of my mouth just go with it I'll and, I, and i was like okay i guess i'm 32 now it just felt <laughs> natural to me yeah i think because it, it is that when the bar opened three years ago the bar opened three years ago so that's when your life changed i yeah. mean almost directly maybe right? yeah. yeah i think it's also i think about when i was 25 and i knew people that were 35 oh, and what that so looked like old. to me yeah it, it looked old it, i they just they felt like moms and dads sure. and pta members and they drove suvs and things of that nature yeah. so i see myself at 35 and i don't feel that way at all about no, my life i know my it's lifestyle. crazy thinking of what 21 year old yourself jessica sanders would look at 35 is it what do you think she would say because i i think about that sometimes and i'm like I still think I'm cool, man. Whatever, whatever. Like I'm oh, absolutely. Well, guitar. I have the benefit of working in a pretty youth-driven industry yeah, still, true, true. right? And I came into this industry much later than most of the people that do. Yeah, they so grow I think up that, in it. I yeah, most people they they're, they're a busboy when they're 17 yeah. or 18, and then they move into a barback position, mm-hmm. and then they become a bartender. And so they've done this for 15, 20 years by the time they're my age. Yeah. And so it's really wild to be 35 and still be kind of in the infancy of a career. Right. But so, doing something that, if you think about the the life cycle of being in the industry, you start at a certain place, and really th- this time I'd say in the 30s, that's when you open your place. You know, so maybe yeah. it's really no different, except That's that you true. had to learn in a different way. And a lot true. of people are never ready to do that either. That yeah. kind of commitment. Got money, 
staffing, ordering. I mean, there's so many different elements sure. of it. Who really wants to run a business? I mean, I, I don't think I I do, but I'll still do it. You know. I think a lot of people think they do, and then once right. they get in it, they're like, "Oh man, this, this is, is what it is. This is what it is. Yeah. Biggest bait and sure. switch I've ever seen. Yeah, for sure. Yeah." For sure, especially for a business that has such a high rate of failure. Oh man, no so, kidding. It tur- there's turnover, failure, crazy uh, v- variable costs with like booze and stuff. I mean, it's insane. One might consider you <laughs> mentally insane to want to pursue well, something like uh, that. Jim Meehan, who runs PDT in New York, he mm-hmm. was giving a talk over the summer and he said, you can't do this unless you love it because there's no right. reason to do it otherwise. Sure. You're never going to be rich. Yeah. You're probably not going to be famous. Probably not. There's a high likelihood that it's going to crash and burn at some point. Right. It's just when that shoe drops, he's like, there's no reason to do it other yeah. than the you passion. just can't imagine doing anything else. But that's that's the right reason to do it. Sure. Because if you go into it thinking, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bank, it's not the right business model. That's, that's the biggest rude awakening. Yeah, like, oh, for man. sure. That is absolutely right. Because when you love something and when you go into it, passion first because you have to you can't not do it right you have to that you expect it's going to be a rocky road you don't expect you're going to be a millionaire you just expect even at the darkest times when you're in the red fucking quarter after quarter and this is maybe a little bit information for me but that it doesn't matter because that's what you expected because you still love it Sure. Despite how it abuses you. Oh, right? sure. It is a very dysfunctional relationship. One with him. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. But he loves me. He yeah, loves right. Me. Yeah. No, it's absolutely true. Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting. So you have one younger brother. Is that the only sibling? Only sibling. So where did. So this is the thing. So I learned a bit about Michael, which is nice. And I didn't realize he's from Houston. We both kind of were in Houston at the same time. Where did you grow up? So I was born in Shreveport, Louisiana. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay. Yes, and uh, I spent my childhood there. Uh-huh. Uh, and when my my parents got divorced when I was eleven, my okay. mom's from California, yeah. my dad's from Louisiana. And where did so, they where did they meet? How does one from uh, California? So my mom in the seventies was like a wild child. Uh-huh. You know, was she from Southern California? She was from Southern California, yeah. so she was very much like the beach bum bunny. Mm-hmm. Hanging out on the beach, skipping yeah. class, smoking pot, surfing? all of that. Uh, not a surfer, um, but just, you know, kind of like, Free I guess it's like she was a little bit past the beatnik era, but gotcha. just hanging out on the beach, reading mm. poetry, doing her hippie 70s thing. Right, right. And uh, when she was 18, she, she met my dad at a house across the street from where my grandparents live. They still live in that house. Is and this is in California? This is in California. Oh, okay. So my dad, um, my dad was born in Topeka, Kansas, but he was a, an mm-hmm. Air Force brat. Oh, so they moved okay. around a lot. Gotcha. And he, at that time, was just he had graduated high school, was in community college, and mm-hmm. was just kind of traveling, also doing the hippie like wanderlust yeah. thing at twenty we years figure, old. Yeah, twenty years is twenty years old. Perfect to figure yeah. that stuff out. Yeah. So they met in a house across the street from where my grandparents live mm-hmm. through mutual friends. And they knew each other for less than three months and got married. Wow. My mom was 18. My dad was 20. Oh, that's not bad then. Yeah. yeah they're both in that same period. Yeah. And uh, so they, he then moved her to Louisiana, which is where he was living at the time. Gotcha. Permanently. Did he get stationed? Well, he was an army brat, but... Or his par- his the- dad was in the Air Force. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So they moved to Louisiana and uh, set up shop there 
I was born about a year and a half, two Into years the, later. So they yeah. were married for a little bit before cool. they had me. Yeah, which means that it was there for love. Exactly. Yeah, which is great. And they were married for about 13 years and then they got divorced. Mm. Uh, really ugly divorce. Really? And my mom was never really content living there. I mean, you In Louisiana. Yeah, it's yeah. a very small town um, just across the river from Shreveport. It's a town yeah. called Bossier City. Mm-hmm. Really tiny town. And when she moved there, you know, his parents were there his sisters, his brothers, yeah. and she didn't, and she also was a stay-at-home mom, so she didn't have oh. a large network of friends around her, Yeah, and so she just had no inclination to stay, so we then, she, after my parents got divorced, which was like a long divorce, it took really? like two and a half years, years. multiple oh, reconciliations, and when you're 11, which is split like, up. Yeah. right, when you're trying to figure shit out too, right? Yeah, I was in the fifth grade, Yeah, not fun, so we, uh, Left Louisiana and moved to San Diego, which mm-hmm. is where my mom's people are. Okay. And so I went to middle school, high school, and In ultimately college there. Oh, yeah. cool. Yep. I went to UC San Diego. And then, uh, but the whole time, probably right around the time that I was 10 or 11, mm-hmm. when my parents were getting a divorce, I had one singular goal, which was to move to New York City. Really? That was all I cared about. What, what was it? Did you see uh, what, Barefoot in the Park with Jane Fonda or something? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I really wanted to work in government, but I wanted to work in like public policy. Okay. And, I, and so I felt like a big city yeah. had like a lot well, of UN's big... UN's there, right? Say it again? The UN's there. Yeah. And I was yeah, like, oh huge. man, like this is the, the epicenter of diplomacy mm-hmm. and it's a big city with big problems and I'm going to go out and change the world. And yeah. so uh, I was extremely studious in, in high school and... Were you, would you say that... What uh, any clubs? I was I was all like in debate and all that. All of the clubs. Yeah, there was not a club I did not belong to. So Michael likes to joke with me that he envisions my high school years as <laughs> me being like Tracy Flick in the movie Election. Oh, oh yeah, oh man, which is not oh, that wonderful. far from the truth, except no for the sleeping with professors and being a little like <laughs> truly off her hinges she's kind of messed up yeah. yeah but in terms of that level of ambition mm-hmm. that's not too far off i mean spanish club yearbook no drama kidding. debate i were just... you like a real straight arrow too or did yes. you like kind of party a bit no 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 not very, yet right i had a very well first of all my mother was very strict because was she? she was a single mom at that uh. point and couldn't really keep an eye on us right. and so her solution to that was to lock it down gotcha so very strict um never partied ever and uh just was just totally like you said studious very academic driven because that was my one place to escape and immerse myself in something that wasn't home yeah because i'm sure you reward like getting good grades getting recognition all this stuff yeah so what was the main would you study then at you said university so i went to uc san diego i um i had been accepted to go to georgetown and to nyu and i couldn't afford it no oh yeah so i was heartbroken um i I got partial scholarships but it wasn't enough to cover the full ride yeah and um I remember at the time being 17 and thinking, this is the worst thing that's ever going to happen. Because to you me. didn't get because to Because I, in, in, I got in and I couldn't go. <sighs> and I just, I was like, man, I wish they wouldn't have even admitted me. Because oh, then I man. wouldn't have known what it felt like to not have that thing. Right. Looking back on it now, I realize I was totally ill prepared mm-hmm. to move 3,000 miles away and be in a college environment. I had very, I had no social skills at that point yeah. because I didn't really. Well, was it about people? It was about you and your mind, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, making it better. But I was completely more... emotionally ill-prepared. So in hindsight, it was a blessing that I didn't go. Just toss yourself into the, the biggest epicenter, as exactly. you say. Exactly. Yeah. 
So I went to UC San Diego. Um, I was a uh, urban studies major, which is kind of is, one of yeah, those like made up majors. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's, that's a an good... amalgam of political science, sociology, economics, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, I definitely partied in college. Was it your time to like? Yes. Get get funky. Yeah. I, I so my my compromise with my mom was okay. I will agree to stay because my my next choice after NYU and Georgetown mm -hmm. didn't pan out was UCLA. Oh, and okay. I was like, okay, I got a full scholarship to UCLA. I'll no take it. No kidding. That's amazing. And she's like, no. Too far? No. Too far away? Too far away. Yeah. And and I think she knew that I wasn't emotionally or socially mature enough. That's a big one. For that. Yeah. So uh, she said, no way. And I said, okay, well, here's the compromise. I will stay in San Diego, mm -hmm. but you have to let me live on campus. And that way and I could at least kind of down the road. Right. But you get your, yeah, freedom it was your probably like 30 minutes from oh, home, not bad, yeah. you know? So I was like, I, I want to live on campus. I want to have that experience. Yeah. So I lived on campus and it was just far enough away for me to get into a little bit of trouble. <laughs> uh, and I made great friends and I had, um, I had a, a dorm of eight girls. Mm -hmm. It was the first time in my life I had like girlfriends. Oh, cool. So that was a whole skill set I had to learn of what it meant to be a good girlfriend. Yeah. And what the, it, I'm not a girlfriend. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be a good girlfriend? Well, I, I later learned, you know, all those rules. Like you can't date your exes, oh, your friend's ex. The like, bro code, but the, converted. Exactly. To, yeah, so, yeah. you know, that was one that I broke and lost a friendship over. So oh. I learned, oh, okay, you're not allowed to do that. That's yeah. not okay. Uh, and so that was a hard lesson to learn. Interesting. For sure. Was that what kind of when you had your most formative dating experiences yes. in college? Yeah. Yep. Um, had my first really serious boyfriend, long-term mm -hmm. boyfriend when I was in college. And uh, yeah, it, it was great. I am really thankful that I didn't go farther away because I wasn't ready for it, but yeah. it was just close enough to be... Kind of like a safety net in a sense, it was a right? You could net, always yeah. go back if... So I studied... Um, I studied urban studies and urban UCS... Studies. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not... It's no, not you can laugh. It's, it's a completely made-up major. Um but, you know, it was interesting because UCSD is a college that's very science driven. So a lot mm -hmm. of people go there because they are pre-med. Yeah. And yeah. so I was kind of often a weird UCSD is divided into to five colleges. OK. And so each college kind of has a focus. So sure. I was a different kind of person. Yeah. Too. Like yeah. so Thurgood Marshall College was where a lot of oh. the liberal arts oh, okay. students went, political science yeah, and sociology yeah. folks. So that's where I was at. And uh, again, still focused on moving to New York. Mm -hmm. So after college, I uh, worked for a year or so. And then the first chance I got, you got out. I started to apply to jobs. I got a job. And uh, it was funny because I was so poor. I had like next to no money. Mm -hmm. And I had to save up for six months to afford the trip to New York to go on interviews. Oh, wow. So where, well, okay. So you did obtain said urban studies degree? Yes. Okay, cool. And so at that point, you're like, got no money. I, I got to get out of here. But I got to get prospects. And I really still have my eyes on New York. Yes. Yeah. So you. So I worked. Uh, yeah. And actually, I had been working full time pretty much the whole time. What kind of during, stuff were you doing? Uh, office work. Oh, okay. Yeah, I worked for a, a general contractor mm -hmm. um, who my urban studies degree really impressed him. Because oh, really? he thought, oh, she's, she wants to build cities someday. She wants to build an urban. Yeah. So, uh, he, <laughs> so <laughs> I want to, I would like, I'm here. I'd like to plan the urban space. Um, so I worked and I saved up for six months to afford a plane ticket and two nights hotel mm -hmm. so that I could go to New York and go on job interviews. 
and I went on job interviews and I expected the process of finding a job to take a while. And at that time, so, you, so you'd plan for weeks staying there, something like that. Well, I just, I know I thought like it would take me a year to get a job. Offer. Oh, wow. So okay. I had, was like, okay, I'll go on these interviews mm-hmm. and I'll weigh my options and I'll see what happens. I was just, for some reason, I just never thought that it would happen. I think because I had been so grossly yes. disappointed. Yeah. Before. You, were, you resented it. You I resented was, New yes. York. Yes. So I went on a few job interviews and I got a job offer right away, How, like without, uh, pretty immediately. So yeah. one, one interview and you get an yeah, offer the, the first next set day, of interviews. Of I got a job offer in the car on the way back to the airport. They called you. They called me and they said, yes, we would love to hire you. And I said, great. Well, I'm on my flight back to San Diego. So oh, let me wow. think about it. Send me the offer letter. Uh-huh. And when I got back, they, I followed up and got the details and they said, well, here's the catch. We need you to start in 28 days. So, and in, so a month later, they want you to start. They want me to start in a month. Okay. And I said, well, that's going to be kind of a problem because I had an apartment at that time. I had a dog. I had a boyfriend. I right, had a right. life. And oh, I, did, I didn't think that I would get hired anywhere right away. Yeah, you were thinking it's going to take a year It's going to take hired. a year. So I, I thought I was day. like getting way ahead of the curve yeah. by starting to interview now. Yeah, for sure. And so they needed me to start pretty immediately. And then at that point, I was terrified that if I didn't take that job, mm-hmm. None next, would follow. None right? would follow it. Yeah. So I said, okay, I'm going to do it. So I broke up with the boyfriend. Wow. I, the, uh, the first long-term boyfriend, right? Uh, second boyfriend. This one was less long-term. Oh, okay, okay. So he probably, did he give a shit? No, he was heartbroken. Oh, and, good. Well, yeah, at least you're a heartbreaker. Yeah. <laughs> well, and we had a long, like, dating from afar thing when I first oh, moved to gotcha, New York, okay. which lasted about five minutes. Yeah. And then five That's more minutes. Really, really and then tough. five more minutes. Back and it, forth. That was terrible. Yeah. How did, the, um, how did the dog fare? Oh, the dog uh, I gave to a friend. So okay. the dog was in good, good hands, good. but I had to sell my car. I had to get rid of all my things. Change, I just... begged, begged my grandparents for $2,000 mm-hmm. to help get me started. And then I had to find a roommate. Man. So I had four weeks mm-hmm. to move to New York and I again was broke. Right. So I scrounged up some money. I borrowed some money to fly. And I could only, this time I could only afford to stay one night in a hotel. Oh, wow. To go find a roommate. And this was before Craigslist existed. Yeah, or so, Airbnb or anything. Yeah. Of that stuff, so right? uh, I had a girlfriend who was living in Greenwich, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And I had her send me a village voice in the okay, mail. Yeah. Right. I had her FedEx. So you would know. You'd FedEx be me keen a, on, yeah, yeah. I had her FedEx me a village voice. And this was like when you were still circling ads in the paper right. to find roommates. Mm-hmm. And so I had set up a few appointments for my village voice ad thing. And then I thought, well, this is really risky, like looking for something in the paper. So at that time, Wait, there why, was, why was it risky? Just because well, I, I was a 24 year old girl. Oh, the innocence of it. And like, and, oh, someone's going to kill me. Kind yeah, of thing? yeah. I, I didn't know what I was getting into. And, you know, the, in the village voice, the ads are like oh, 20 huge, words, right? you know, it's oh, like, oh, oh. so you have no clue who these people are. <laughs> yeah. And but at that time, there was a groundbreaking new service that what, just launched called roommates.com. I've heard of it. Yes. So roommates.com, it was one hundred and twenty nine dollars to join roommates.com That's for a, a three month subscription. And I joined roommates.com for the sole purpose of finding a place to live. Mm-hmm. And so I had set up between the village voice and roommates.com. I had set up 10 appointments. So I to, flew in on a red eye okay. to go to New York. Right. I landed at six in the morning and then I just hit the pavement and I went to all these places to meet Gosh. these prospective roommates. Right. Are they people and, kind of renting out rooms? Basically? Yeah. Renting yeah. out rooms. Uh, in some cases, renting out beds. I oh. mean, there were some really awful squalid 
it was just incredible. Like there was one situation where it wasn't, it was a building that wasn't zoned to be a residential building. It was technically a commercial building. So there was no shower in the apartment. And the girl that lived there was like, oh, it's no big deal. I just shower at the gym across the street. And I thought, well, so now I have to factor in a gym membership into my rent every month. And what happens if you have to use the bathroom in the middle of the night? Like, how how does this work? So that was a no-go. It had no kitchen. She cooked on a hot plate. God, hobo living. Yeah, there was, and it was in Soho. So, you know, you're in like the poshest part of New York City, but you're living in this It's so It's so crazy, isn't it? The, The contrast. There was one ad that was a Village Voice ad. The person advertised that they were a young professional looking mm-hmm. for someone to share a one-bedroom apartment. I showed up. It's a one-room apartment. Oh, so it was a studio. And the young professional in question was a 45-year-old man. Oh, no. And his idea of roommateship was that I would sleep on the futon and he would sleep on the floor next to me. Oh, my God. So, that's strange. hella creepy. Yeah. Uh, that's not a roommate. That's a concubine. That is a concubine. Yeah. Or yeah. it's Patrick Bateman. It was really creepy. Yeah. And so that was a no-go. Uh, one place, you know, was really expensive. And then the very last place was where how i met michael because he was the 10th no uh, way meeting. he yeah. was the guy renting he was the out tenth. so his story was that and i'm sure he told you this but he he was living with his friend roble who was a yeah, chef roble was gonna go off and be a famous chef and do a cooking show <laughs> so michael needed to find a roommate mm. and he had interviewed a few people to be his roommate and none of them worked out for whatever reason and he yeah. was really apprehensive about living with a girl sure and but i was super studious and um proper right proper i mean i'm not saying you're naive i also was definitely rocking the lesbian chic at this time oh why is that oh uh sorry terrible (laughs) terrible fashion sense at this time Uh, pleated front jeans uh, clogs (laughs) i mean total butch haircut it was not a good look for me that was a dark time but for for michael it's like oh man no nothing no signs going off perfect exactly this is great right so uh he was the 10th person and he and Roble I met I came and he lived in Harlem at the time mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I was super nervous about it because I thought man I don't know about living in Harlem because the only thing I knew about living in Harlem right. at that point was like what I saw in Harlem nights in Harlem nights or one Jack you know what a new, <laughs> new Jack, Jack City. City yeah oh man so I was convinced that I was going to be raped and murdered in sure. Harlem they would see you and they wouldn't want to be you exactly so I and then of course the building that Michael lived in at the time was next door to like a low correction low low security corrections facility <laughs> for people that were like purse snatchers or oh, okay. you know okay really like non-serious crimes right and I, every day at three o'clock all the prisoners would be allowed to come out on the front stoop and mm-hmm. smoke a cigarette and so every you know long story short they interviewed me michael and rubley interviewed me mm-hmm. they asked me like a barrage of questions I about can't myself yeah. you know i remember the most significant one was what's your do you have any problems with porn in the house? Oh, that's yeah. an alarming question. You know, it was like, you know, are you clean? Do you have a reliable source of income? Oh, this uh, all makes sense. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, what kind good. of music do you like? Sure, sure. How do you feel about porn in the house? What the hell? That was... Was it the their live stream at the time or something? I mean, you know, they were 25-year-old guys. So... Uh, that's funny. Same story. Same what scenario. Year, what year was this, by the way? This was 2003. Okay, okay. Yep. So... Same story, when I got into the cab to leave, because before that 10th meeting, I had met with a girl who lived in Hoboken. Mm -hmm. And super cute apartment, very girly. Yeah. She was great. 
And I thought, okay, well, that's probably going to be it. I could afford it. Right, right. And then Michael called me and he said, okay, well, we, we discussed it. We deliberated. And <laughs> he it, used the word deliberated, of course didn't he? he? Did. And he's like, we, we <laughs> deliberated. And if you would like the, the room, it's yours. I just need to know by the end of the week. And so I said, okay, well, I'll think about it. I'm going to fly back home mm-hmm. and I'll let you know. And so on the plane, I thought, well, you know, the girl has a, a nicer apartment. It's in Hoboken. It, it's in it's in Hoboken, though. Yeah. And so I thought, well, am I really moving 3,500 miles across the country to, to live in New Jersey? Live, oh, my right? gosh. Yeah. So that's yeah. not New York. And right. I wanted to live in New York. Officially, you're right. Totally. So not. I told myself, OK, I'll move in with this guy. I'll be his roommate for six months. Okay. And if it's an abysmal failure in six months, I will have had a steady income for six months in new york and i'll just i'll leave i'll sign a six-month lease and then i'll bounce you'll you'll find another place in new york or you'll just leave new york i'll just leave i'll leave that apartment gotcha gotcha, so he was going to be like my temporary fix he was the to get me into manhattan and i was going to live there for six months and then in six months i thought i would have made so much money at that point that i would be able to bounce and go find my own apartment Mm -hmm. or or a better apartment that's not in harlem uh where where girls like me get raped and murdered so that was that was my plan yeah that's a good plan. Sounds yeah, good so it's far. It's great. So uh, when I moved from San Diego to New York, every single thing I owned fit in two suitcases. That's actually pretty admirable. It was very freeing. Yeah. Looking back on it now, I thought, man, I just to only be weighed down by two suitcases in your life at that, that's that point. That's the summary of your life. It was great. Yeah, it's cool. And I took the same red eye that I had been taking mm-hmm. every trip. I took that same red eye and I landed in New York. I got the keys from Michael, who was on his way to work at mm-hmm. seven in the morning. Right. And uh, I had to take the bus that day from Port Authority, which is to this day to me the scariest place. I've been there and taken a bus and it I think that someone's going to offer to give me crack and a hand job at any moment. It's so sidebar. <laughs> one of my favorite games is which is the scariest environment to be stuck in? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> An off track betting salon. Mm-hmm. A check cashing place at mm-hmm. three in the morning or the Port Authority. The and port the Port Authority. Authority wins every time. Every time, right. And whenever I have this debate with people, whenever they try to argue against it, I always point to the fact that shortly after I moved to New York, uh, two girls were kidnapped and beaten and raped. In the Port Authority? On, on the West Side Highway. They were, oh, okay, 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 okay. And the person that they arrested for this crime said that it couldn't possibly have been him because mm-hmm. he was getting a hand job from a prostitute in the Port Authority Which at the time. Which is a great alibi. So that was his alibi. That's a if wonderful If that's the alibi. kind of person where their alibi is that <laughs> they were the getting port a hand job in the Port Authority, that's not a kind of place I need to be at any <laughs> no, point in my life. Point. So that same day that I landed, I, I had to take a bus from the Port Authority to Ikea mm-hmm. to buy furniture for mm-hmm. my room right. and sheets and and then yeah the rest was history i was michael's platonic roommate for yeah. four, the six months came what did and you went. what what was like an because was he were you guys going out a lot or were you staying at home watching like, i initially horror movies? like what what was that well, dynamic I mean, keep like? in mind i had my six month plan yeah so, oh sure so my you was, did you not want to get close because you I, knew you were gonna head out partially or? that and also i wanted to save up as much money as possible right uh, so that I could eventually get my own apartment. Gotcha. So that means not going out. Much. I wasn't going out at yeah. all. And Michael was going out a lot. And he mm. had he worked in advertising at the time. So he had the kind of job that afforded him the luxury of going out a right. lot. And I just wasn't down. I was there to work. It, I went back into studious mode. Right, I'm here right. to work. That's all I'm here to do. I'm here to work. Clogs. I'm not here to make friends. Not show friends. It's yeah. show business, right? 
And so I was working a lot. And finally, after about four or five months, mm. he convinced me to come out with him and some friends. And was this like, your first time, like, kind of going like, out? Like, really going out in New York City. No yeah. kidding. Okay. Yeah. He's like, look, you got to come out and have some fun. You're just, you, you have to. Yeah. You you're can't stuck stay at in your home all the time. time. So he uh, invited me out with some friends. And I was like, okay, he, he's all right. I can hang out with this guy. Sure. And we just became really good friends. And so the six-month mark came and went. I also realized very quickly what a complete pain it is to move in New York I can't imagine. City. It's easier to move cross-country than it is to move within, within the, the borough city. of Manhattan. How do you even do that? You get a truck, but a truck's expensive. There are there are, trucks? There's two U-Haul facilities in That's Manhattan. It. That's it. And it is a race to the bottom oh over who's bad. It, it's crazy expensive. The customer service is they deplorable. Don't like, they don't give a shit. They don't give a shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so the six-month mark came and went. We ended up staying in that Harlem apartment together for two years. No kidding. And then we moved into a new apartment on the Lower East Side together. Mm -hmm. But it, it was still, at this point, it was still platonic? Still platonic. Yeah. And so we that went on for about four years. A like platonic? That. Totally pl platonicity? Platonicity. I dated other people. Yeah. He dated other people. We both had some significant relationships with other people in that time. Sure. When we were single, we were each other's best wingmen. Yeah. You know? Yeah, he told me about that. Yeah. And uh, and then one night we just weren't platonic anymore. And you got, what, was it a night out of drinking? Was it a simple Hugh Grant flick? <laughs> what, 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 what was it? So the... it was one of those perfect days. I had gotten a really huge promotion at work. Oh, great. Roble had signed the deal for his cooking show. Which, uh, yeah, that's amazing. And this was. 2008 okay oh it's not too too long ago 2000 no 2007 it was 2007 okay. roble had signed his first deal mm -hmm. so he got like his first like really big paycheck. i'm gonna be famous yeah thing. like yeah. this is really happening now mind you when roble moved out the first time uh -huh. that allowed me to enter into the picture yeah he told Michael he was going to move to L.A., but he only made it to Brooklyn. Oh, geez. So, for, so Michael was really pissed because he had gone through all this trouble yeah, of having to find a new roommate. And Robley just moved across the river to oh, Brooklyn. Oh, man. But Robley finally Faithful, got a though. deal. He Faithful. finally got his deal. He got a big paycheck. I got a huge promotion that day. Mm. Um, so I forget what happened to Michael, but something he had gotten like some big award at work. So yeah. all of us had this perfect day where these awesome things were happening in Everything our lives. Everything was aligned. Yeah. Everything was aligned. And so we went out. We went into the Lennox Lounge, mm -hmm. which sadly is no longer there. But it was an iconic bar in Harlem on 125th Street. Mm -hmm. Jazz club, supper club type of experience. Kind of dark. Beautiful, dark. Yeah. Smoky. Smoky, yeah. Um, it had, you know, the big leather booths, banquettes. Yeah. Was it, it wasn't red, I mean, red le leather, was it? I mean, legends sang in this place. Oh, you know, really? Duke Ellington and Billie Holiday and just an incredible, iconic venture yeah. um, that was on 125th Street and Lenox Avenue. And we would go there a lot. Mm -hmm. And at that time, Harlem was not as gentrified as it is now, but we were kind of on the cusp of seeing that happen. And yeah. so the Linux Lounge, you know, started to become, I knew that it was a bad sign when I saw the digital jukebox go in. Oh, no. And that was a heartbreaking so day. So it was a casualty of the gentrification. It was, for sure. Oh, that's For terrible. sure. And now there's a massive high rise there. Yeah. And, um, the money I think came in. I heard Robert De Niro bought the building. I'm not sure. Oh, really? But Harlem is a very different place than it so was. So I hear. Then. Yeah, I've never been. Very there. different. But yeah, so we were we went to the Lennox Lounge at about 8:30 at night, and we left at six the next morning. 
you were there for 10 hours? Yes. Doing 10 hours. What? Listening to jazz yeah. and, and celebrating and, uh, you know, feeling very alive and young. Were you young. drinking at that point? Yeah, too? we were drinking. Yeah. What were you drinking? Oh, God. Uh, what was the, what's the best accompaniment to the... the... So, in those days, uh, this was right before we discovered like cocktail bars in new york city uh -huh. so we were still on like coors lights and makers mark neat gotcha that was our go-to coors so light bad. makers mark neat yeah that was our jam uh but yeah we but lots of lots of conversation obviously everybody's totally stoked on Absolutely. all the great opportunities we just felt so happy yeah we just felt so that was probably one of the happiest days that you can recall of us the three of us hanging out yeah celebrating I, we kind of it was at that point i had been in new york for about four years at that point mm -hmm. and i just felt like it was finally clicking because new york can be very much like a roller coaster especially in those early years i remember some days i would love it and i would think oh my god i can't believe this is finally happening yeah. i'm finally here and some days it's like why did i move here this is the worst decision it's ever. so hard to just it's exist, hard. right it's hard to live yeah. you're you're paycheck to paycheck all the time mm -hmm. it's very expensive whatever mood you wake up in you better hope it's a good one because it's going to be an assault on you for the rest of the day. Oh man, why and, is that? And it's but it's also great. It was good for someone like me because New York, everyone jokes about people in New York being rude and they're mm. not rude. They're actually the nicest people in the world. Mm -hmm. They just require a very high level of self-sufficiency gotcha. and they have no patience. Little tolerance for bullshit. Little tolerance for bullshit. Yeah. So I I came into it already pretty independent and it just kind of strengthened that quality for me. Yeah. So you think that that was something that you needed to go through? I mean, it seems like a gauntlet of sorts. So you go from kind of having this wonderful phase in college where everything's enlightened. You have social skills now. You're going through the dating world. But New York really cemented your ability to be an adult, maybe? It cemented my ability to be an adult and just to be an open-minded person. Yeah. I mean, I think about the people that I dated during that time the kinds of friendships that I had, mm. you know, I worked with a woman who was a dominatrix by no night. No kidding. So that was fascinating to learn about That's that. That's still fascinating. You know? yeah. Oh yeah. That's crazy. I had infinite questions for her. Yeah. Does it ever get, does it ever get a little tiresome? Oh yeah. Okay. Jessica, the kind of whip I like is not a Chinese whip, but it's a Brazilian whip. I was like, how do you find these people? And yeah. she's like, oh, they find me, you know? Oh, great. And, That's great. and then I also became really fascinated with her ability to create like a persona and, yeah. You know, she was a secretary by day yeah, and yeah. did this other thing by night. And so it just taught me to, you know, I really, it helped broaden my horizons and make mm -hmm. me realize that there's more than just, you know, the 400 square feet of my apartment. Yeah. And, um, it also, you know, really taught me, you never know who people really are, no. what they're really about, what they're really into or passionate. It's very rare that you find someone that um, is an, a totally open Sure, book. totally transparent. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's insane. And I, I have to be honest, like, Everybody that's come in here, I've had, I had one, I'll allude to it, but I had one experience in which I think that, and it was somebody really close to me. They were just bullshitting me. And I was like, dude, just be real with me. Sure. I've known you for over 10 years and it was always so scripted. And it's like, but beyond that, every single person that's come in here has been totally transparent and not hiding and just self-effacing, which is a great, great thing. And I think maybe that experience probably helped you just be real and be yeah. understand yourself, right? Yeah. Well, and New York is great because whatever eccentricities you have, whatever past you have, you are accepted there. Mm -hmm. There is a part of town for you. 
you know, if, if I guarantee that woman lived on the dominatrix block of wherever she lived. <laughs> wherever and that you, may you be. Just, yeah. You learn how to build your own family. You learn how to build your own community mm-hmm. and rally around people that are of like minds. And yeah. not necessarily that they come have similar backgrounds, but people that have like temperaments and yeah. similar values. So... So you it came into great. your own, suffice yeah, it to say. absolutely. So you have this one magical, hopefully there's been many since, but you had this one magical evening with Mike. Yep. And it was surrounded by all these great opportunities presenting themselves, a bit of po- a wave of positivity. And so you guys make the call to yeah. be together. Yeah. Yeah. We, well, we, we hooked up and, you know, of course the next day. You wake up and you think, oh, my God, that was the stupidest thing ever. Sure. Well, but then, of course, yes. so then you go into survival mode and you're like, OK, we're not going to make it awkward. Right. We're totally, <laughs> we're we're which, totally going to be cool. Always makes it awkward. We're totally going to be cool. It's no big deal. It's right. like it never even happened. And so then we kind of like started to hook up with some level of frequency. Uh-huh. Right. And did, did you suspect that it? Did it feel like there was an emotion there there was an emotional intimacy there beyond the friendship or was oh, it just sure. a physical thing? Oh sure. So you I couldn't mean, deny that you were building some emotional intimacy. Of as course. Well. I yeah. mean, we were very close friends at that point. Right. And I was very determined to not let it get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being the the strong independent woman that I was yeah. at the time, I was thinking, okay, well, you know, I'm not gonna get emotionally attached. Yes, he's my friend and yes, yeah, we're having yeah. this intimacy, but uh, that's all it is. Sure. You know? Oh and yeah, you're putting your you're you're in control. Exactly. We are friends with benefits, this, and that, that is, is the it. ideal situation. Sure. And but also aside from that, we just really enjoyed being around each other. Yeah. And so then I start. It, it did start to get uncomfortable. What, because, what ha- did something happen? Or? Well, because we we were still, you know. We weren't together, like right. we weren't dating, so that left room for us to date other people. Oh man, I can't imagine and, that's easy. And especially, you know, being a guy in their twenties, mm-hmm. the filter of okay, well, maybe I shouldn't bring a girl home to the home I not, share with a girl no that filter. I'm sleeping with, yeah. right? That's not a good thing. So it got really uncomfortable for yeah. that reason. He Did, was still he was still dating other girls, right? And Did you date other guys? I dated other guys, yeah. but I never brought anyone home because so I. So you saw you actually saw things like you saw some boundaries. It, I just. I just felt like it was tacky. I don't know. There yeah. was something that, but also I, I've never been one to sleep around. So it right, wasn't right. like these dates were going anywhere physical. I just intrinsically felt that it was kind of a tacky thing to do. Gotcha. And we had certain restaurants that Michael and I frequented mm-hmm. and we had sort of made kind of an unspoken rule. All right, if you're going to go on dates, don't, go don't take them here. Because yeah. what I didn't want to happen was for him to go on a bad date somewhere. And then it ruins it for you. And it ruins that place for him. And yeah. now I can't go there right. either. Right. You know, you know, it, I think that it would probably became pretty apparent because it's apparent to me, at least from these small details, you guys were falling for each other and that's why this stuff hurt. Yeah. Oh, sure. You know? And so what, what did you guys have a conversation? Was it a kiss in the rain? What was the moment where like, fine, we're going to stop fucking around. <laughs> we're going to do this. So this, this whole thing of, of us, you know, kind of screwing around, but yeah. dating other people and it being weird, this lasted for about a year. Mm-hmm. And finally, it just wasn't working for me anymore. I was, I was really not a liking. A year, sorry, a year. A year. Oh, that's and gotta be soul crushing. It was terrible, and I just didn't like the person that I was becoming because yeah. I was becoming increasingly jealous as this year. Sure, went on. you were allowing yourself to feel for some dude who may not be feeling the yep. same things. Yeah. So I decided we we can't be roommates anymore. Oh, this isn't man. gonna work. So I went and moved out. I got an apartment in Brooklyn. 
Really? By yourself? By myself. Uh, and Michael got an apartment in the East Village. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think is really telling is the day that we moved, we moved me into my apartment first. Mm-hmm. The day we moved Michael into his apartment, I remember saying, okay, well, you're all moved in. So I'm going to go now. I'm going to get on the train oh, and man. go to Brooklyn where I live now. Yeah. And I didn't even make it to the subway before Michael was like, hey, do you want to have dinner? Right. So then we were. But he let you leave. He let me leave. Yeah. So we were living in two separate apartments Mm -hmm. and still trying to stay away from each other and trying to. I was like, I'm determined to do my own thing. Right. Right. And this went on for probably six or seven months. No kidding. And uh, I we were still hanging out and being friends, trying really hard not to be physically intimate with each other because Mm -hmm. I was trying to distance myself. Sure. But then you'd fall into that situation, you know, and we just kept coming back to being together. And I remember Michael had to go to his best friend's wedding in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so my girlfriends at the time, we all went out for a ladies night and, you know, got a little tipsy. And of course, the girlfriends around me are like, girl, you need to just stop this nonsense. (laughs) And he is never going to come after you. So you just need to let it go. And so at that night, I said, you know what? You're right. Fuck him. I'm oh, going to, no. you know. And I, I can see what's around the yeah. corner. So I was like, fuck him. I, I'm i done with it. Yeah. He, he, I'm never calling him again. We're st- I'll be ca- over I'll, it. I'll, I'm over it. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. I'm tired of being dicked around by this guy, sure. right? Who wouldn't be tired? If, of if he really dick- cares about me, he would have announced he it long ago. For you. He would have right? fought for me. Yeah. Forget it. So uh, that night, I uh, enjoyed the company of another uh-huh. and had a great time. The very next day, Michael called me and asked me to be his girlfriend. Oh my God. So he's at this wedding. He's in Mexico? He's in Mexico. What do you think happened for him? I think he was at his best friend's wedding. And he saw love. And he saw someone else in love and he was feeling lonely. So he called me and he said, you know, I've really been thinking about it while I've been here. And um, I I really care for you. And I really Mm -hmm. think that we could be a real couple. Yeah. And I was pissed. I was so mad. God damn it. No kidding. Oh, it's like just a little bit too little too late, Michael. So I told him, I said, you know what? Why don't you ask me in person? Because I was convinced that the only reason why he was calling was because he was lonely in Mexico. Yeah, maybe drunk. Maybe drunk. I don't know. And I said, you know what? Tell you what. When you come back in eight days, why don't you you find me? You make it legitimate. And you come and ask me in person. Wow. And so, and it's really telling of our, you know, I said, we're never in the same mood at the same time. During that time, we were never feeling the same way for each other at, at the, the same, same time. time. So we yeah. we played this cat and mouse game forever. I was, I was really into him. He wasn't into me. Mm-hmm. I had said, fuck it. I'm not into you anymore. Then he then comes then around. He comes around. Right. Yeah. And so this went on for a year. And then finally, uh, so he came back from Mexico and uh, a couple weeks later, we go out to dinner and he's like, no, I'm really serious. Like, I really, Let's I really it. would like you to be my girlfriend. And I said, okay, why don't, I said, why don't we make it a probationary thing for, three, <laughs> for three months? As you can tell, I'm very into probation periods. I guess so. Uh, I said, all right, well, let's see how it goes for three months. Mm-hmm. And I said, but the most important thing is. I, I do consider you my best friend. I right. don't want to lose that. So if we get the sense that this isn't working, I think we need to end it and just agree to be friends. Right. And we dated for a year and then he proposed. Oh, wow. And then we got married. Would you uh, married in New York? Were you still living in New York? Uh, we got engaged in New York. Mm-hmm. And then uh, this during this whole time of dating and 
the cat and mouse game yeah. was when we discovered cocktails. cocktail bars yeah. and uh, we started hanging out in them a lot and mm-hmm. we became really interested in that. And so when we started to date seriously before we were engaged, Michael said, well, you know, what do you think about moving somewhere else and, mm-hmm. and opening a bar, opening a restaurant? What do you think of that? Uh, I was apprehensive at first just yeah. because... I had no experience doing it. Like Michael yeah. had at least worked in restaurants before. He had waited tables. Oh, did he? Okay. okay. I had no experience in that world. Yeah. And I knew it was a very risky thing. And mm-hmm. it also it seemed too fun to be something that you could right. do for yeah, real life. That's a good point. I was like one for you, one for me. It one just me. It, yeah. it seemed too fun. I thought, you know, surely people don't make a living doing that. That seems too easy, right? Yeah. It seemed too easy. I thought there's no way that anyone does this for real because right. It's fun. And so you thought anyway. So I thought, yeah. right. <laughs> and he's like, no, I, I really think we could do this. We're both clearly passionate about it. And we were also at that point in our careers where we were looking at our bosses mm-hmm. and thinking, okay, do I really want to be this person in five right. years, yeah, 10 years? Exactly. And I, like, I, I, was working my for, mark. Right. I was working for someone who was particularly terrible at that what, time. What was the job then? I was working for Forbes magazine. Oh, no shit. And I was in their marketing department. Um, so Michael and I had complimentary jobs. He was in ad sales. Right. I was in ad marketing. So uh, I, my sense. job was to come up with ideas that someone like him mm-hmm. would go out and sell. Gotcha. So I was the steak and he was the sizzle. Makes right? sense. Okay. And... But the, the the man that I was working for at the time was incredibly ego driven. Yeah. And was he uh, older? Or he just was in slightly his, older like than... late thirties, early forties. Okay. Uh definitely a Patrick Bateman type, you right. know, very put together, very, you know, Armani suits and mm-hmm. um super wealthy and just kind of a prick, to be honest with yeah. you. But he also the one good thing I will say is that he drove me to be better all the time. You in know, which, which sense? In the sense that he was never satisfied until it was perfect. Got it. And so... Committed I, to quality. I, he was very committed to quality. And he also had a whatever it takes attitude. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I appreciated about him was that he would stay in the office until you were done. And I had had bosses oh, previously wow. that they would take off. Sure. And go to dinner and you let you just stay there and toil away. And he's like, no, I'm going to sit here until you present me a perfect product. Wow. And that's good because you're like, well, he's putting time in too. He's putting time in too. Right. And he was a real asshole. Mm -hmm. And I, there, I just, I, I didn't respect him as a human being Mm -hmm. because I, but at the same time, but his work ethic, he had an incredible work ethic and I, I respected that about him. But I also looked at him and I thought, man, he's really terrible to other people. I don't, I don't want to be that in five years, right? Yeah, he's a terrible human. Yeah, I, mean. I don't, I don't want to be so driven by work that I right. forget how to be compassionate to. It's the Don Draper syndrome, for sure. Wonderful work ethic, mind, creativity, terrible ethics. Exactly. Yeah, morality. Exactly. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the Don Draper example, but that's pretty spot on. God, because you, man, you look up to Don. How could someone be so brilliant? But then you're like, he's so flawed. He will never be truly loved or truly love anybody else. Right. You know, because he doesn't like himself. Sure. You know, it's just a deep, rich psychological case, Mr. Sure. But yeah, I mean, I imagine there's lots of people like that. But I was also like one of the only women in that entire office. It was a very male driven workplace, which was Mm -hmm. cool. I never was made to feel excluded from anything because I was a woman. 
And I never felt like I was denied opportunities because of that. Mm -hmm. But I also was looking above me. And the only person who was in an executive position as in that woman. company as a woman was Steve Forbes' daughter. Holy so shit. So I thought. Or fathered into yeah, it. And yeah. she was, she's an incredibly brilliant person. But I thought, man, you know. I, I don't have the last name Forbes, so the chances of me really rising in this company so are pretty unrealistic, Okay, quite frankly. Yeah. So uh, it was at that time where I was like, you know, I really don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Right. And But I, we really were drawn to this other life that we saw. And mm -hmm. so Michael said, this was before we even got engaged. He said, I really think that we could do this. And we had both been saving up money. Yeah. Um, our entire time in New York, we both had financial planners. And yeah, yeah. He especially was pretty financially savvy. And so I said, yeah, you know what? I think maybe we could do that. We should definitely yeah, think look about into it that. At least, right? yeah. And uh, he, he proposed to me, we got engaged and then we moved. We, he proposed to me in October of 2009. Mm -hmm. We moved to Austin in February of 2010. Okay. And then we got married in May. Oh, cool. in Austin. In Austin. Oh, right. Yeah, I didn't plan my own wedding because I didn't live here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And How so, would you? So my mother-in-law planned it. Okay. Uh, Which, did your father move up to Austin at some point, or he was still in Louisiana? My dad still lives in Louisiana. Okay. Yeah. Which is his his new wife or whatever she yeah. was the one. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So no, Mike's mom is the one that planned oh, the wedding. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mike's mom planned the wedding. Um. Which was fine by me because sure. I'm really not a wedding person. I'm. You know. I think weddings are great, and I am tickled pink that Ladia is making our invitations downstairs, man. Because <laughs> I can't do it, and she's got the skills. I'm just gonna even with your even with your masterful Photoshop well, skills. Yeah, I mean, when the pictures from the wedding come out, then maybe I'll I'll tweak them, you know. Oh but yeah. In terms of like actually analog in your hand, paper invitations and stuff like, there's no better person to yeah. do that stuff. Now know. that I'm older, I appreciate it a lot more. I wish yeah. I could do my wedding all over again. Oh really? Now that I'm older and I have a better sense of my tastes. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the time it just seemed like such an extravagance yeah. and we had a, we had a beautiful wedding. I wouldn't change it for the world. But, um, at the time I was like, man, all the, who cares about spending money on these flowers? I do, like I totally know. it's just yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> it's for, you know, it lasts a day and then it's over. Right. There's other things to spend money. Travel is the thing to spend money. Oh uh, yeah. Well, the life. biggest regret I have is not buying a house in Austin with that money. I don't even five want to about that. <laughs> <laughs> man, I know yeah, it's a sore could, subject. I realize. Yeah, it's like, Jeff, I was talking to Jeff Bully the other night and he had a, an amazing lot that's worth millions now that he had to sell to move to the West Coast. I but... cannot wait to listen to Jeff Bowles. Oh, it's podcast. incredible. I cannot wait. It is wait. so incredible. He's such a great, such a great dude. Yeah. So we're here. You guys, when is the, I think I went to the third anniversary. So you're over, you've been open and drink well now for over three years. Correct. Right? And so when is the anniversary for? Uh, fourth is the end of February. Oh, that's killer. It'll be four years old. Do you, think it's aged you a bit i definitely think it's aged me a yeah. lot a is it, lot it's because it's hard dealing with that the hours are long yeah it's hard on your body it's hard on your um emotional health yeah uh and you because really your job is to take care of other people right right that's totally your, that's, that's your only lot in life is yeah. to take care of other people whether and for the most part you you spend most of your time taking care of your staff yeah and so you know people always say oh do you mike have kids and i say well i have 11 kids i have a i have 11 <laughs> children you sure, know they exactly. all they all need my attention they are very expensive they yeah. occasionally need their diaper change that is absolutely <laughs> true they fight with each other they fight with each other yeah. they you know they have needs they need to be recognized as individuals mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um so 
you know, it, that's the, to me, that's the hardest part is the hours and you, you give of yourself like to the point where your gas tank is empty, empty some days. Yeah. And sometimes you don't have anything left to give even yourself. Right. And so well, and that's bad because then you don't take care of yourself. Well, you and as an, as an industry, I think we're all coming to a reckoning where that's concerned mm -hmm. because especially in this, you know, cocktail world, most of the people that have made a name for themselves are now getting to be in their thirties and forties. And in some cases their early fifties. Right. And you cannot and live that same lifestyle. You can't, you, cannot you can do see it. it on people's faces now. For sure. I look at live. pictures of Michael and I, the day that drink well open and mm -hmm. pictures of us now. And you know, some of them, we look 10 years older, not three or four years older oh, than, than we are. Uh, and so now it's like, all right, how do we reverse this right. train? Right? Cause you can, once you're in that steady state mode, God forbid, cause it, but it, I know there's ups and downs, ups and downs still, but there is a point in which you can just take your hands off of it a little bit and say, okay, it's going to exist. It's going to do well. Right. But I need to focus on it's the era of Jessica. Well, we yeah. have the luxury of having a successful business, yes. right? I oh, can't yeah. imagine how people that do this that really are struggling to like just get butts in seats right, and seats right. and get people in the door. Um, and, you know, we have the benefit of at least knowing that, you know, our business is doing well and it's yeah. because we put in so much hard work and that's yeah. something to be proud of. I'll tell you this, you know. In the, I've been around the world a, a bit, different areas of, in, of Asia and, and soon to be Europe and stuff. But Drinkwell is still one of the best places in the world. There is a vibe and an ambiance that has not been captured elsewhere and especially hasn't been captured in Austin. So you guys have done something, something that's truly unique, which in that industry and in having a cocktail that experiences a customer that's hard to come by a unique experience, you know, sure. where it's surprisingly cordial and surprisingly laxed, but yet beautifully detailed. Like it over delivers because you don't expect it because it's like, feels like cheers, right? Right. People know your name. Everybody's friendly, but you get a cocktail that not is only creatively crafted from name to ingredients, but it's executed perfectly. Well, so thank you. how... How do you get that quality every time? What is that? How do you do that? Uh, you just accept that that's the only possible the only outcome. option. That's yeah. the only option, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember when Drinkwell opened, I told David Allen specifically, I said, you know, if ever you come in here mm -hmm. and it's not great, you have to tell me sure because so often places open and everyone's really excited about them. Right. right. And we pour all of this love and all of this attention into them. And then six months later you ask someone about it and they say, you know, I went and it wasn't that good. Right. I, tell I, somebody, you know, man, you, you know, know, tell yeah. somebody, especially if, if you're my friend. Sure. Tell me. And I, I think we were, we're so addicted and connected to niceties and social etiquette that we won't be critical. And the problem is with that, is that being critical is a human right and a human skill that needs to happen. Like you have to say, this was okay, but you guys have done way better. What happened? Right. I mean, I don't know why we don't hold ourselves to higher standard. I mean, shit, if we talk about the spirits market, I am outspoken like nothing else because sure. you guys could have done, you could have had better work than this. What were you doing? You know? Right. Because if everybody slacks off, then everything's slacked off but if everybody's doing excellent everything is excellent. oh yeah rising tide raise, yeah. raises all ships absolutely well and i think we get i think sometimes too we don't recognize 
that every place does have its own vibe, right? Sure, for sure. And, you know, how is it that Drinkwell exists in a world where it's as good as Midnight Cowboy yeah. or Whistlers or Hot Stepper? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we all be the best that we can be right. in and, your still, own and still be excellent? All yeah. of us are excellent bars, yeah. but we're all so different, right? And so I think it's unfair to say that one bar is better than the other. No, it's can't, you know, you can't. I'll tell a story. Um, my bookkeeper went to Gramercy Tavern. Okay, in New York. That? Oh, okay. In okay. New York. It's a Danny Meyer restaurant, or okay. it was, right? And, you know, Danny Meyer, of course, is the blueprint, right? He's yeah. who we're all supposed to be looking towards mm-hmm. for guidance. Right. And went into Gramercy Tavern, sat at the bar, and the bartender, his shirt was wrinkled, it was untucked, mm-hmm. was kind of surly, mm-hmm. the service was slow. And, you know, my bookkeeper friend was saying, this is supposed to be Mecca for the hospitality yeah, industry. This is and the... I'm having a terrible experience. Yeah. And what that reinforced is that any bar or restaurant can be the best bar or the best restaurant a, on any given night of the week. For a day. Right? You're right. Yeah. If your entire staff is dialed in, if the place is like as clean as it can be, if the mm-hmm. drinks are as consistent as they can be, the ice machine is on point, right, your right. juices are fresh, everything is clicked in. Yeah. You could be the best bar in the country that night. That and it moment. doesn't matter if you're Drink Well or Trick Dog or Anvil right. or some, you know, whatever beer dive down the street. Yeah. And I've had those nights at Drink Well where I look around and I realize every single thing it's is going, clicking here. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't happen all the time. Like sure. there's plenty of nights where there's something that's just not. Well, and the customers have a lot to do with that too. Of course. But you, you do. You're, I've been there those nights. Yeah. And I think that's what you're talking about that. It's like, this is really flowing. Yeah. You know, this all, we're, we're all, all connected here. It's all working. Yeah. It's all working. Yeah. And then there are those nights when nothing's working. Right. Everything's breaking. The juice is like a day older than you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Someone came in, we call it skunking, where like a, someone comes <laughs> in with a bad, in a bad mood. And then oh, therefore no, everyone get, around them becomes dick, in a bad yeah, mood. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, some, you know, someone has skunked the building oh. and Mike and I aren't getting along that day. So our vibe is off. So we can't, we're, you know, projecting that onto the rest of the staff right, right. and everything's disorganized and you somewhere out of something and, you know, those days happen with as much frequency sometimes mm-hmm. as the really, really awesome days, right? Yeah. So, you know, you, you you just can't get lazy and settle into those bad you're days. You're totally right. I mean, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. I had at a place I considered the Mecca here in town for a long time. I had a bad accident. I won't talk about who it is. But I had a bad experience. But you know what? I told the GM. I saw him that night. I'm like, dude, what the fuck is going on? Sure. You guys aren't going to sub a mezcal for me that I'm calling? Okay. Yeah. Fine. Sure. But, but I mean, the, and I still remember that. I'm, so, I'm just not even hateful or resentful or anything, but I, that one thing. But that made it better. And I know that it got back to the staff. And I'm not trying to be a pain in the ass. I'm trying to help because mm-hmm. it helps us all. If we're all right. great, then we're all great. Right. You know? Right. Well, and there are certain situations where I've certainly gone into places that I love and had a bad experience because oh, because my preferences that night mm-hmm. shifted, right? Gotcha. And they couldn't live up to what my preference was, whether they knew it or not, or whether I knew it or not. Yeah. And I always think about that scene in the movie High Fidelity where Jack Black is saying, you know, complaining about something. He's like, how can it be bullshit to state a preference, right? <laughs> and sometimes people come in and they just, they don't have a good time. 
you know, I can just tell the guest mm-hmm. is not loving what we're doing, but it's because what they were looking for that night is not what we do. Right. You know, and you can't and do anything about that. You can't do anything, but it's hard because sure. you want it. You want to make every You're single person elated. Yeah. yeah. And, but sometimes you do have to, to settle back and say, you know what? There's nothing I can do to make this person have yeah. an awesome time. That's cr- it's- And I can sense those people. Like as soon as they sit down, I just know they're not going to love it. And yeah. I, I'm going to do my best. But they're and that's not gonna all you love can it. do. They're not going to love it. And at the very least, I usually tell people in that situation, have you been to right. fill in the blank? Because I'm willing to bet that they are going to have exactly what you want. Yeah. You know? Well, it's good of you, though, to know. Because yeah. it's about your customers, too. Yeah. And they'll come back, you know, even if they're having a bad experience, but you're helpful and it's not the right moment for them. They'll mm-hmm. still come back. But, you know, here's something that I want to talk about. Because Drinkle is doing really well. We'll talk about Backbeat in a second. But... You personally have had a pretty good career as a mixologist. And please, that is not an invective or a derogatory term. I don't care. I, yeah. That word doesn't bother okay. me. Okay, good, good. Coctologist <laughs> is actually one of my favorite, <laughs> favorite ones. But did you ever see you thriving in a intellectual... Because now it's all starting to come together for me. You are incredibly intelligent. You do well at school. You get your degree. Now it just seems like you're applying that knowledge and the attention to details to a different medium and that medium is spirit. So how has that been for you being the performer, being the competitor in this cocktail world? It's weird and it's not weird. So it's not weird in the sense that I've always been very driven Mm -hmm. and whatever, you know, I, whatever career, whatever job I've had, I, I fully immerse myself in it. Yeah. Cause I want to be great at it. Sure. I've never, I've never needed to be the best at something. That's not a, an aspiration that I've ever had, mm-hmm. but I do want to feel like I'm great at it. Yeah. So, uh, in that sense, it, it's felt natural because this is something that requires you to immerse yourself in it fully yeah. in order to be good at it. Right. Right. So what is strange for me is that it's a very public facing it is. role. It's very rock and star-ish. Especially in the context of, of Michael and I's relationship. Mm-hmm. He's so much better at that piece of it. Right. The, being so, being the public facing being guy. The pu- like he's, being the voice, maybe. He's more jovial. Yeah. He is more uh, he's the kind of he's a cold caller. Like he can walk up yeah. to anybody and start up a conversation and they can feel like they have a rapport with him instantly. Right. I don't have that skill. Mm-hmm. I am the closer, yeah, right? Yeah. So for I had a lot of insecurity the first couple of years because anything that's related to this industry that's somewhat academic in nature, mm-hmm. right? Knowing the cocktail recipes, right. understanding the production, um, man, that's another piece too. Understanding right? production yeah. The, the technical aspects of the job, mm-hmm. that's really just about how much you're willing to study, yeah. right? But the intangible pieces of the business, your ability to talk to people, relate to them, build a rapport, earn their trust, um, you know, be likable, right. for lack of a better word. Yeah. That was the part that I thought, you know, I, I'm a fucking fraud right now. <laughs> like, I'm a complete fraud because... Yeah. Anyone can read a book and master a lot of recipes, but yeah. that doesn't make them a good bartender, for, right? For sure, it's soft so, skills. Total soft skills. Yeah. So for the longest time, I thought, okay, well, yeah, you know, and I think a lot of people get stuck in that mode where they need to be told they can make a good drink, mm-hmm. right? And they, that's they, what that's they, how they they feel their love. That's what they care about. Yeah. Do I do I make a good drink? And yeah. and to be perfectly candid. For the first couple of years of doing this, that's where I was. Like I wanted you just someone, needed to know. I needed I wanted someone to say, 
you can make a good drink. Anybody right? or somebody in particular or a certain the type guests, of person? The guests. The guests, yeah. Uh, you know, other people in the industry. The other yeah. thing is, is that because we started this so late, um, you know, Michael a little bit less so, but I definitely have a high level of insecurity about the fact that we did start late. Yeah. And we have a very atypical situation. And I remember having a conversation with Justin Elliott one night mm -hmm. and, you know, he told me, he's like, look, you're never going to have ground up credibility in this industry. What it, ground up? Like, oh, ground up. Ground got up. It, got it, right. Yeah. Where like you started as a, a bar back and then you were right. a bartender and then a bar manager and Paying then a GM dues, and then say. a bar. And then the bar owner is like the end of the story for yes. a lot of people. Right. right? right. And he's like, you're never going to have that ground up credibility. How do you feel about that? Um, it bothers me because this is an industry that's driven on like blood, sweat and tears. Right. Yeah. And so for a long time, I felt like, well, I haven't toiled in the same way that a lot of people toil. Right. The first bar that I worked behind was the one that I own. Yeah. It's a very different way to get there. So in a lot of senses, I feel like I'm trying to catch up to where everyone is. Yeah. And does, it, does that, it's an interesting thing. Do you feel like even though I, I I would think that you do deserve it, but do you feel like at times when you're competing and doing well and people are giving you, you're on the news, for example, do you think you deserve it? I never feel like I deserve good yeah. things that happen to me. I never. Are you feel Catholic? Like, no. No. <laughs> no. I I I mean I did, I did, I grew up in a house where I I just wasn't praised verbally, right? right? And. So I never was told like, you're, you're smart. You're doing a good job. Yeah. So I, I'm always hungry for it. Sure, right? sure. Um, but yeah, I, I guess so, I, sometimes I don't feel like I deserve it. Right. Yeah. But then on the same time, I do know that I work hard. You work for I, it. And I care. Sure. I yeah. really care. I really want to do a good job. I want to be good at this. Because you, you wonder if someone is obsessed with the obsessed with details, which I think you are, and they're obsessed with it for three years. And they think they put 80 hours of mental time into studying something. Is that not better or the same as 10 years of putting 10 hours? You know what I mean? Sure. Like it's, it's all about a level of engagement, I think. Of course. And it's a matter of how you're going to devote your time to something. And just because you, by happenstance, bust tables because you don't know what you want to do for five years, right? I mean, that's right. a long time to bust tables. I don't know. Right. I, that's not maybe the right kind of dues. I mean, it's a very similar uh, dynamic in the music industry too. Yeah. You know, where yeah. people come in. But you're obviously doing a good job with it and you're being recognized for it. And you're the president of the USBG, right? And I suspect that you're leaving because of the time commitment. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know what? Thinking through it, I think what makes me guilty about it is that there are so many people who are doing such great work mm -hmm. and not everyone gets equal credit. Right. Right. Because this is also a very PR driven industry. It absolutely. Right. Is. You got to either be a self promoter or pay someone and, to promote you. Yeah. And that's, you know, I was going back to Jim Meehan. He was talking that same talk. He was talking about, you know, opening PDT mm -hmm. and what the cocktail scene in New York was like at that time. Yeah. And he said, you know, at that time, the other player in the game was Sasha Petrosky. Sure. And Sasha did not want to talk to the press. He was not interested in promoting himself yeah. or his bar. And he really... Um, he wanted to do what he wanted to do, He wanted right? to do what he wanted to do. And Jim was like, well, look, these these reporters, these these photographers, these, these writers, they want to talk to somebody. Sure. And if we're going to get the craft to be respected, he's <laughs> like... 
it might as well be me. You're, you're right? absolutely right. And, yeah. And he got, you know, he, he said, I remember feeling very insecure about that because I thought, well, am I selling out? Am I like right. being braggadocious or, you know, yeah. by putting myself out there? But and someone and has saying, to be the but icon. But someone has to be that person, yeah, right? And someone sure. has to, and you can't, as long as you are not screwing someone over, right? being dishonest, mm-hmm. Or lying, or um, cheating your way to the or, top, or demeaning someone else in the process. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with saying yes. I do good work, and I care, and you know, yeah, I'm proud of the work I do. There's I'm proud of the work that my team that. does. And but you know, I think the key is you have to recognize it's not just about you, right? right. Drinkwell is not great because I do a good job, or because Michael does a good job. It's a team. It's good. It's because everyone does a good job, and we expect that of them. Yeah, and, exactly. Um, you know, anything good that happens in that space is ultimately driven by, do people come in and have a good time? That's all that right? matters. Do people, are people made happy by what we do? Your bar is not defined by how many times you're on Eater. Of course. Like you personally, or right. how many times you're on the news. Of course. Because one, people have really short attention spans. Mm-hmm. And two, it's not about you. People don't say, oh, well, just because the single point of failure for drink wall right like, no that doesn't happen and so it's it i like it because that's how that again and i always use music as a metaphor but that's how music is too there's the guy that says i'm gonna do what i'm gonna do and it's okay if i talk about it and, and, and the press about it and then you got kurt cobain that they succumb and are crushed by the fame because sure. they don't have nothing to do with it right so i mean that happens so it seems like you're doing a good job with it and you're keeping it honest and you're promoting good things and how has the USBG experience been for you as president? Uh, well, USBG has been great because in the sense that I learned a lot about yeah. this industry in general, right. especially early in it, you know, mm. four or five years ago when I first moved, when we first moved to Austin, the probably one of the first people that we met was David Atlan. Yeah. And um, he really encouraged us to join. And I'm glad that I did because it was exciting to be a part of the USBG at that time where there were, it was a smaller chapter and everyone was learning together. Right. right? Now the chapter is much larger. We've grown a lot. And so you have people at all varying levels in their career, Mm -hmm. which is really important because it broadened for a while. It was like the, the 10 or 20 like super nerdy cocktail geeks. Mm -hmm. And that was the sole thing that it did was all right here's the 20 cocktail geeks that are going to get together like a chess and club <laughs> get, yeah get geek out on cocktails and that right. was all we talked about now we talk about cocktails we talk about spirits we talk about distilling we talk about um you know speed efficiency service right. hospitality food it's beer more, wine it's more it's than, so much more than yeah, that right uh, the usvg is not an organization without its flaws yeah right I think it has a lot of work to do. And Are the flaws what drove you away or was it purely just It was purely stuff? the time commitment. Yeah. Right. I mean, it requires from time to time, it takes up all of your time. Yeah. And unfortunately, I'm at a place in, you know, my career and in, in the, the space that the, the bars are going to be in that yeah. I can't give it the level of attention that it deserves. Right. So it's, and also I think it's time to hand it off to a new. Because it's been a couple of years for you, right? I've been the president for two years. Yeah. I was the secretary for two years before that. So I've been involved on a local level at a high level for the last four years. Right. Um, and I'm really grateful to everything I've been able to learn and the relationships that I've built within the USBG. Mm-hmm. But I also think that the city is in a different place than it was. Oh, yeah, it's then. totally different. And it needs a new crop of leaders that are more immersed in that thing, yeah. you know? And I intend to still stay involved and I intend to still stay vocal about the ways in which I think 
it needs to be better serving its yeah. members. I don't. Yeah, I mean, I don't suspect you'll go quietly into the <laughs> night. I'm sure you'll be outspoken voice, you and Michael both. Let's take a moment to talk about the bottle that we've selected for this conversation. Oh yes, indeed. It's funny, you know. You know, everybody's like, "Oh, the old charter." I'm like, "Well, y- yes." But my old charter will go away very fast because everybody <laughs> keeps flocking towards it. But you picked the Booker's 25th anniversary. This is a 10-year bourbon, cask strength, although it looks like it might be filtered. I don't get too nerdy about that, but it's about 65%. What do you think of this beam goodness? So I, I had the pleasure of sharing a nip of this with Adam Harris not oh, too long nice. ago. Oh, nice. Mr. Beam himself. Yeah, and- National uh, American Whiskey Ambassador for Beam. Mm-hmm. And... The way that he described this bourbon is perfect to me in that, you know, when you first wake up in the morning mm-hmm. and you get that first hot cup of coffee yeah, and you drink it and you're like, oh, coffee, right? Yeah. It's a that's, sensory overload. It's a, that You just feel so comforted by it yeah. and welcomed into the day. For sure. And this bourbon is very much that thing. Yeah. It's like you, you sip it and there's just, you know, you want to hold it, cup it in your hands yeah. and just say, oh, whiskey, you know? And the thing that I really love about bookers in general but especially this expression of it is mm-hmm. that there's a viscosity to it kind yeah. of an oiliness right that is just so pleasing sure. to me well it cuts a lot of the burnout it just feels so luxurious yeah i guess it's really silky it does it well there's a it's thick mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's not just there's not as much water in it so you're yep. talking about lots, <laughs> right. of, lots of distillate you know <laughs> A lot of distillate. It's really beautiful. And the bottle is really beautiful. And I think this was, I mean, it was pretty limited. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I get, we get to share this one. Yeah. So, but I'm sure what I'm waiting to, to ping you with questions about and what hopefully people are, are really looking forward to hearing about is the new spot. Back is now the Backbeat or Backbeat Just Street? Backbeat. Backbeat that is right next to Raman Tatsuya on South Amar, right? Correct. And I saw some pictures. You guys are in the process of building. We won't, I won't get into timelines and shit because I know this stuff just, it moves around so much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> but you wrote a great record with Drinkwall. It resonated. It's platinum. People like to listen to it still. Is this trying to be something completely unique or is it a riff on the general values you guys have and drink well that it's comfortable but yet the cocktails are incredibly detailed and and well executed i think it well the challenge is is how do you translate all the values that are really important to you yeah and that are important to the integrity of your space Mm. how do you translate that in a slightly larger space with more moving parts so you got more square footage this time more square footage yeah Yeah. it's almost double the square footage oh wow not quite double but almost yeah and there are certain values that we have as a staff mm-hmm. and as a service model that, you know, it's like, all right, how do we do everything that we're great at doing at Drinkwell in a bigger space that's going to move faster? Right. And what sacrifices do you make in that process? And and also, I think you need to give Backbeat a chance to build up its own set of values that right, are right. going to be important. Organically just kind of rise up. For that up, space, right? right? Yeah. Uh, but there are certain things that, you know, like I never... I never see Michael or I ever opening like a true downtown spot or a yeah. nightclub right, or right. Uh, we still want it to have kind of the the character of a neighborhood spot. Yeah. Regardless and it's going to have food as well. 
it'll have some light food, you yeah. know, bar setting. Definitely not as kitchen driven as, as drink well is. Gotcha. We really want to focus on the drinks. Yeah. Because the thing is, is that we didn't want to venture into doing a second project until we found, you know, are you are you solving a problem or are you creating a solution? Yeah. Right. That's okay. the question yeah, that people ask. Right. And we didn't want to just create a solution where there wasn't a problem. Right. Gotcha. And not to say Market that it's an opportunity. Right. right. Yeah. Not to say that there's a problem, but there's just no um, there's very few non restaurant great cocktail bars south of I the river. I completely agree. And yeah. There are some amazing bar programs on that side of the river. Sure. Box Table is fantastic. Oh, great, they've yeah. done, I think they've really like set a new standard for, for that area. For that area oh, and for yeah. what cocktails, just cocktails in general in yeah, the city great. are about. Mm -hmm. uh, Odd Duck has great drinks. Yeah. Um, but there's no standalone true cocktail bar no, in that part of town. Right. It's all restaurant programs. It's all or... restaurant programs. And I think that the opportunity to do a space that people can enjoy late night. Mm -hmm. That is has it going to be different? Is it going to be the full hours this time? 2 a.m. Oh, it's great. 2 a.m. Yeah. You know how many people want to keep partying at Drake Club? <laughs> I know. I know. Every time I, I know have it's to tell stuff, people but... to leave at 12:30, it breaks my heart. Yeah. Um. So yeah, late hours, and I I really feel like we're we're offering something that. I mean, people want it because it's an extension of Drinkwell, sure. Yeah. But I also feel like... It will exist on its own right, too, though. That, it, that we're doing something special down there, yeah. right? That doesn't exist already. And we have the opportunity to... The same way that I think Drinkwell, I hope, elevated what was going on on all the great things that were already happening on North Loop. Yeah. You know, the Tigers was already killing it. Foreign and domestic was killing it. Right. And we came in and we're like all right, how do we round this out, yeah, right? Yeah. And I feel like we have the opportunity to do the same thing on South Lamar with Backbeat. You guys going to focus on any particular, uh, anything that you want to particularly have a nice collection of? Some people uh, have that preference, you know? Well, Drink All is very clearly American whiskey Absolutely, focused. Yeah. I think Backbeat, I'm really aiming to have, at least in terms of neat spirits, a little mm. bit more of a world whiskey focus. Oh, okay. I think that that, uh, people are hungry for that. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to expand the wine offerings. At oh, yeah, we okay. get so immersed in, in talking about cocktails, right. but um, I am really excited to uh, have a, a larger wine selection. And mm -hmm. if you look at what other bars around the country are doing, you know, there, where do you go in Austin that has like a great champagne program? That's a cocktail bar. Uh, yeah. Right? I don't know. <laughs> or, 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 or a great sherry program or a yes. program. Right. Yeah. Like those are things that I think are starting to trickle into Austin, yeah. but you, 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 we have to be consistent about pushing it. Right. Yep, for and sure. like, I know small victories, Josh Loving's place is yep. going to open. And I know that that's a big part of his program. Mm -hmm. And that's Wait, which awesome. part the sherry or the sherry, yeah, or at least, okay. yeah, like sherry and vermouth and things like that. And I think that's really exciting because what happens is, is that I've seen it where people get really wrapped up in a particular spirit mm. for six months and then they, and they, then they abandon, abandon it. it yeah. Right. And in order for your guests to really get excited about it, it has to be unrelenting. For sure. You, know? you got to be in, through that. You've got to be an advocate for it. Yeah. And get people excited about it. There's going to be a Peace Code program, too, in a place that's coming out. That's awesome. Yeah. It's one of the interviews. I love it. Love to share the details about that, but that's a great. So you've got sherry, you obviously bourbon always. You've got mezcal. There's that other Vox table place opening up mm -hmm. as well that will specialize agave in agave spirits. spirits. Yeah. Yep. Um, and you guys wanting to focus on? I mean, you think it's going to be champagne? Well, I, I mean, I or that's more uh, wine. That's think? one of the parts of the program that I wanted. That's to a kill. That'd be incredible. You know, I. Well, you know, I drink champagne when I'm happy. I drink it when I'm sad. Yeah. You know, right? So. uh 
I think that that's exciting that we you can have a cocktail bar that has an equally strong wine program yeah. um, and, a, and a great beer program too. But, um, you know, I think from a cocktail perspective, like the hard part is not screwing with it too much. Sure. Right? Don't the, broke with, the don't temptation, with, yeah. The temptation to overthink it is yeah. really high. Right. And especially when it's your second place and sophomore jinx, as they say, of right? course, yeah. I mean, that's a huge fear because people, you know, they want to see like, what are they going to do next? And, you know, there's that yeah. temptation to get like really culinary about it. Right. And super fancy. Yeah. And, but at the same time, it's Gastronomy. like, you know, just don't mess with it too much. Yeah. Like, just all, let it be who you are. It, yeah, you know? exactly. And it can still be excellent. And that's the hard part. And that that's where you go back to a conversation of pushing classic cocktails mm -hmm. or creating originals, right. right? And creating original cocktails is a real tricky road to walk because, first of all, everything's been done. Yes. Everything's been done. Beatles did it. Everything's you know what I mean? like, been done. For sure. So to have an original cocktail is kind of a non-existent Needle idea, in the haystack right? kind of thing. Yeah. And if you... The harder you try to do it, the greater the likelihood is that you'll fail. Sure. Right? You, and You're totally right. Yeah. It'll be contrived. But at the same time, I feel like you can get an old-fashioned anywhere. Yeah. Right? So I do think that there is a portion of like those those signature recipes mm -hmm. that give a bar its identity and its character. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, why? if you're just going to drink old fashions, like there's 12 great bars to get old fashions at, right? Yeah, right. If you're, if you're talking about the product alone... What are you going to do to make your product unique yeah. and stand out? Uh, the key is like, how do you not get too fussy about it? Right, right. Not get too but get precious fussy about enough. it. Get fussy enough. Yeah, it's hard. But just not too precious. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm at right now. So I'm like in the process. Are you of guys done with the menu conceptually? No. 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 I'm in the middle of that right now. Yeah. It's like, you know, trying to get my head around like what makes sense for that space. Because mm -hmm. there also is a functionality question that needs to be addressed. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of bars overlook that. You know, Backbeat's going to be a bigger space, higher volume. It's going to have an upstairs rooftop patio, which oh, is really great. beautiful, but there's no bar up there, right? Yeah. So how do you get drinks in people's hands quickly yeah, and, yeah. and that are consistent in quality? So, you know, there's a functionality piece that needs to be addressed and that prevents you from getting too fussy. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're trying to serve, you know, two or 300 covers a night yeah. and you're also trying to have six pickup cocktails, those two things don't it's exist hard. in yeah. the same world. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, um, so why, why, why are you guys doing it really? Like for you, what, why would you do it? Because I feel like we have the opportunity to offer something in a part of town that is not served already. Is not, is underserved right yeah. now. Um, and I like the idea that we're helping to, you know, add a unique voice to that mm -hmm. street. I mean, I mean, you're Austin's in great company a lot. down there. Austin, oh, yeah. Well, that's the other. I always joke. This is like all part of my elaborate plan to be to closer to Lenoir and Odd oh, Duck yeah. and Ramen and Tatia <laughs> yeah. and all my favorite restaurants. You know, this is really just about me getting closer to yeah. those, those places. Uh, no, I really think that we have the opportunity to do something special. I hope people like it. You know, of course, we're terrified that, you know, people aren't going to like it. It's going to be like the sophomore album that yeah. completely flops. But you, you can't think about that. No, right? you can't. You can't. You can't be afraid to try to do great things. Right. Like I said before, if you're not demeaning someone else, ripping someone off, mm -hmm. 
you're doing the work, you're putting out a good product, people will find you. Yeah. You know, and I that's what so. happened with Drinkwell. It's it grew and it there's, grew on its there's own. There's no legs. there is no reason on paper why Drinkwell should be a success, right? No. You have two operators who have never worked in a bar before, right? Right? Yeah. That built it from scratch and if you go by that logic there's everybody no, fails everyone fails <laughs> yeah. right like oh we're two people from new york like double yeah, whammy right, right right oh you're gonna move to austin you're gonna open a cocktail you bar sons right? of bitches you think you're just gonna come and walk exactly. in here right exactly like there's no reason on paper why Drinkwell should have been a success yeah. but there's the energy that you can't you can't explain it and just you have to put in the hours yeah like you gotta put in the hours and i know i know you guys are doing it doing a great job with it I can't, I mean, do you, I'm going to ask you anyway, but is there even a loose date as to when you guys are trying to get it out? South Where, by, is that right? Uh, before is that, oh God, <laughs> hopefully before South by. Uh, you know, we're really aiming to um, have it soft open just after the new year. Because gotcha. here's the deal, on paper, the building will be done before the end of the sure, year. Sure, but it's all the But the hard part is, stuff. it's difficult to staff a bar in December. Oh, good point. Yeah. Right? So uh, that's our trick. It's like, mm. it's not so much about the building piece of it. It's about Finding getting the, the right, right team in place because that is crucial. Are you going to share staff at all between the two? Yeah, locations? I'd like to, to cross train. Yeah. I mean, that's also tricky because, you know, Drinkwell, we've been very fortunate to have very little turnover at Drinkwell. Yeah. And we've, we've had a consistent staff and that consistent staff has really helped to underscore that neighborhood, reliable, consistent thing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. People can expect a familiar face when they walk into Drinkwell. Mm -hmm. And if you start to take that away and start, you know. What does that do? What does the, that do to the yeah, vibe of the space? And we, we have probably the best team that I think we've ever had at Drinkwell right now. Yeah. And of course, I say that with, with every team. Well, it's you know? good though. It's great. Yeah. Well, and I always tell, you know, something that was taught to me that I think is important to pass on is every bar team, you're part of a legacy, right? Yeah. There was a staff before you. Mm -hmm. There will be a staff after you at some point. No matter what. Yeah. And in what condition are you going to leave that bar program when you move on to do whatever the next thing you're going to do right. is, right? It follows you. It follows you. And so I'm hoping that, I am hoping that the spaces can share staff at some point, mm -hmm. but I also recognize that Drinkwell has something special going on right now and I don't want to mess with that too yeah. much. Makes perfect sense. Well, it's been a great, great chatting with you and I, I love hearing about the intricacies of what is a uh, a very interesting relationship between you and Michael. To say the least. <laughs> to say the least. I can't wait to shit, man. I I I look forward to your anniversary party at Drinkwell every year. I love it going. It's crazy that it's going to be four years. I know. And it has been... Drinkwell, for me, has been one of the most influential spots. I don't know that we would have been able to feel the way about the industry and as warm about it and like as positive about releasing whatever we release if it hadn't been for you guys and your staffs. And we've forged some wonderful relationships with you guys and uh, friendships, hopefully that last this long time. So I thank you for that. Well, thank else. you. That's, that's the highest of compliments. Well, I, I, I mean it, man. It's a, it's a wonderful spot and it is the place that anytime someone's in town, like you got it, you have to go. There is no, there's no alternative. So Thank you so much, Jessica. Well, thank you very much. So did you guys learn a bit about Jessica? I think it was a great story. Lots of good tidbits. The sordid love affair between her and Michael. It's a great chunk of the story. I think it's very telling about who they both are. 
I think I learned a little bit about myself and how to communicate better. No, this is not a therapy session, but you know what? Why not? Why not? Why not let it be whatever it needs to be? So thanks again for tuning in to Show to V. Let's all in early 2016 meet at Backbeat because I cannot wait to see what they're serving and slinging. Thanks again, but whatever we do, no matter what it is that we do, keep dancing. <laughs>